There have been many ups and downs over my 30-year career in criminal justice, from being a young police officer in the UK to running investigations on a global scale. There's rarely a dull moment. Today I'll be looking back at some of the interesting situations I've found myself in over the years with Felicity Kennedy, who helped me write my upcoming memoir. We'll explore the unique bond we built during the process and some of the most unbelievable moments I've shared with her over the years. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. When you write a book about someone's life, it's a very intimate, as in intimate, you, get, you dig into places. It's a bit like going to therapy, I guess. Um, and Nina chatted away with stories, but it's one thing chatting and it's one thing writing it down. That's why you have a ghostwriter because if you just wrote everything in a quote form, it doesn't work. You have to sort of tie it together. And then as the time progressed, I discovered that Nina tends to <laughs> Her stories have wandered all over the place at times and we sort of ha- I had to stitch them together very carefully and chronologically as well. And um, that takes time and it, it did. It took a lot of time and we had a few ups and downs in your life and uh, my life. We bonded um, specifically over our siblings. And, look, I knew that I frustrated the hell out of you at times, Felicity. But um, during the process of that, my brother had committed suicide. So one of the things that we spoke about during that process was suicide and actually how it was dealt with from a police point of view for me, because my brother's was dealt with by the police. Um, and during that the time of us doing the book, sadly, Felicity's brother also died. So on a couple of levels, the book was good for me because it gave me a distraction uh, from the from the pain and the grief of losing a, a sibling. Uh, well, anyone, pain and grief. I sort of threw myself into it and Nina completely understood where I was. So that was uh, the universe maybe putting us together. She was very patient with me. I mean, I wasn't great either. I think both of us stumbled through it, but we got there in the end. The one thing I really remember is that I had to cancel a lot when we were due to write for operational reasons. What would be one of the stories that you remember? Probably the most dramatic thing you said was the very first time I heard you speak at that charity function and you were telling us how you caught a man that had raped a woman and he had super glued her eyes shut. So... um, he wouldn't recognise her, and that really, really resonated with me because it was such a sought-out crime to do that to someone and such a cruel thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, everything about the crime is cruel, but to superglue someone's eyes shut was really, um, I don't want to negate that the rape, everything's disturbing about it, but that, that whole thought process is just bizarre. Um, but as you delve into the world of crime, the whole the whole world is bizarre. Yeah, and it's funny you should mention that particular case because obviously 30 years there's been a few cases, but that was the case that made me become a detective. Mm-hmm. Working with her 
as a young rape officer that I should probably never have been, but back in the days, you were a rape officer if you were female. You looked after kids if you were female, whether you got kids or not. And she was the most amazing, composed person that I probably have ever met. And she's actually somebody that I use now a lot as an example because recently they've there's been a lot of talk about rape and there's a there's a horrendous case in the UK at the moment with a police officer who's 25 years police service and was charged with 30 or 48 rapes. But people all over social media have been talking about, you know, how somebody should act like they've been raped. And if they don't, does that mean you shouldn't believe them? And there was a debate in L.A., on a social media board that I was privy to where I just happened to say it was about training and maybe people needed more training and it's something that as an English police officer, as a rape officer as they were called, we were trained to how to look at other signs. It's not all, you know, people don't always go to pieces. Um, It's same as grief, you know, people don't always react the way you, you may react or you expect someone to react. And I was called out by an LAPD officer for making a comment and was basically told to keep my mouth shut because rape victims do lie. And I'm like, no one's saying that they don't. All sorts of victims lie. But she didn't act like she was supposed to, and I use that in inverted commas, because she was very calm. She didn't want anyone calling. She didn't want her family notifying, which... You know, she didn't break down. And so she really was the reason I became a detective because I wanted to capture the people who were doing this to her or to people. I wanted to be the one that could could actually make a difference by arresting them. But um, she really was the person that made me be a detective. And I hope I hope that woman who's you know represents all of the genuine rape cases out there. I hope she's still living well and happy. I mean, postscript, her eyes were fine because the first thing I asked from there is, "What the hell happened to her eyes?" Perfectly all right. They were you know medically washed out. She's she didn't damage her sight or anything. But the things that these poor girls go, women go through, and they're not to be believed. It's a painful reality. Yeah, and that's a. And I know that Adam and I have spoke about doing another podcast about the the process and the system. And the guy that's just been charged in England, the police officer, he raped people, police women, and they said they didn't report it because of the system, because of the process. Do you do you think in the thirty years you've been in the business, there's a change towards um, rape cases because it's his and her word? There's no very few witnesses involved. I don't. I don't. I, I honestly don't think. I think there's a persona that everyone thinks there's been a change, and obviously we look at things like in Hollywood that have happened, and obviously there's been big named cases that have made a difference. And I always say, you know, Epstein has made a difference. Sadly, but he made a difference because people understood that sex trafficking was not just underprivileged kids or dragged off a street corner, um, that it was the wealthy also. But when I look at the police process, I'm not sure whether there's been any difference. 
Um, I know as a woman that it's very hard to still go through that process. And why is that? Is it, I mean, there are, yes, it is his word against hers. And yes, there are people who make false allegations. But at the end of the day, you know, if you don't think you're going to be believed by the process, why would you put yourself through that again? And I do think society wants us all, all to think that there's been a, a change. In, and the English case, and I'm, I know we're not in England, but the English case, the chief superintendent or whatever rank he is said last week, you know, I need people to believe in the process. I need people to come forward knowing that we are looking after them. Are you? Are you really? You know, we look at all the things that go on and and I don't know. I don't know. I would hope it's changed. And it's a long time since I was there, but in reality, has it really changed? I don't know. Well, the more people talk about it and the more um, these brave women come forward, I mean, in America, you know, in America, the whole Epstein case was phenomenal because it brought it to attention, like you say, and the media were onto it. So um, as sad as it is, it's a, it, the fact that it got exposed is leaps and bounds on what would have happened 30 years ago. You know, I, I've said many times, oh, I don't get PTSD, but, and I don't, and I'm very fortunate. Um, but I do kind of relive when I'm telling a story, I, I'm back wherever that might be. And I did a podcast about my stalker and it was like it would happen yesterday because I can picture him. If I was a court drawer, I could write, I could draw his face and it would be identical to his picture. And it's how many years ago. So it was that also you had the power to take me back to a place where I actually relived that crime or that event, but not in a way that it was traumatic. Yeah, that, that event, uh, you wanted to dedicate a whole chapter to that. I remember we did a whole chapter on him um, because it was so profound and so scary for you. And the fact that you're still talking about it now after all the all that you've been through is um, it must have really impacted you. Stalkers, are they the worst stalkers? It, I think it, it probably impacted me more than I knew. And I did a podcast. One of the first podcasts that came out was about having the hit out on my life. And actually only two nights ago I was talking to somebody about that and we were t- I was retelling the story because obviously now everyone's fascinated and they're like, didn't know, you know, because it's not, so, you, you don't go on a first date and say, oh, by the way, I had a hit. I had a stalker. Someone's tried to kill me. But he was having a conversation and, and I said, you know, I remember sitting in the corner of my sofa in a ball, shaking, not putting the TV on because I was too scared that I wouldn't hear the noise of somebody outside trying to get in my house. And he was like, you didn't say that on the podcast. That's like, and I said, well, no. Hello. That's what you used to do to me. So it's kind of, the, the point is that, you know, to try and, I want people to understand, and you just said the word, you said, you know, fear. You wanted to, there were times when I'm, I think I'm superwoman and I'm tough and there were times when I'm not, but I knew that you would be able to portray that in the book because of 
who you were and how you wrote. And that's really important to me because, you know, even the the young girl with the eyes glued shut, I mean, amazing and inspirational to me, which is sounds kind of weird, but I wanted that to be portrayed correctly. And then how she got dealt with actually by senior police wasn't necessarily great. Yeah, and I think I think that's what is sets you apart is you still talk about these victims years later with respect and what they went through and they're still on your mind somewhere deep in your recess. And really all your experiences have got um, a lovely sort of respect for all these victims and the hope that you can make it better. This is what your the book's about, what your life's been about, is moving forward, trying to better the system trying to respect the victims, keeping them in mind and just not so clinical about the whole, not dealing with um, cases like their production line. You know, you care about the people that you've been working with and the baddies, you can fish out a baddie from miles away, you can smell them and, you know, if they're no good, you can't fix these people, you know, there. But it's more you've always had so much empathy for the victims and that's what, a lot of people concentrate on is the criminal, but I think your your empathy for the victims is more profound, and um, that I like because everyone concentrates on what the criminal did, how the criminal operated, how they got caught, da 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 da, and the victim somehow is just a sometimes just a prop in the story, but you've always been very very thoughtful to them, and you still bring them up and you use them as a an inspiration to keep going. We met at a charity event and you're still doing that sort of form of community work and that I admire about you. Thanks. The reader has to have a little bit of humour and you're funny. You, when you get going, you're funny. You sound, you sound all serious but you're actually, well, I mean, we laughed at some of the things. I think I tried to put some of those funny things in, um, like in your early years, um, the police ball and all those sort of funny, funny moments. Um, did we put that in the book? You know, when you went to the ball, in the, there was a story about, oh, God, um, when you went to that ball. Oh, yeah, my officer and a gentleman moment. So I, so that, that was when I was nominated for, or I, I was the top, I don't know what the, the proper title was, was when I was the top cop at the, at the college, at the police college. So as a new recruit, I was whatever they called it. And um, the privilege of being the top cop was you got to sit on the top table with all the fancy senior police officers, which was everybody's nightmare. You didn't want to win it because that was that was payback. And <laughs> I had had a boyfriend the whole way through my, sadly, through my police training college, you know, I'm 18 and I'm now at police training with all these really hot young cops and I have a boyfriend who happens to be in the RAF as an officer. So he was stationed away and I kept talking about this boyfriend, Roger. His name was Roger. He had to be in the RAF. His name was Roger. And so I'd been talking about him and no one believed I had a boyfriend the whole time that I was at police training because they thought I'd made him up because no one ever saw him and he never came to anything. So when I was awarded top cop and I was on the top table, you could bring somebody. So this was the night before graduation. I mean, it was a big deal. We'd been at training college for six months and we'd been living together for six months. 
And so I was like, yes, Roger is going to come to this. So I was all excited. Everyone gets to meet Roger finally, who they all think is an imaginary friend. And I go on the top table with all the chief constables who you don't want to sit next to. And I leave a spot for him. And I'm also master of ceremonies for my sins. And we all come in, everyone sits down. I sit down, there's no Roger. And I could see the whole room looking at me going, he was made up. He was so made up and now she can't get out of it. And I thought I looked a million dollars and I'm like, there's no Roger. And I was so close to tears because I knew that's what everyone was thinking. Then we all ate the first course and I'm like, I can't get through this. This is so awful. My friend came over and said, it's okay. You can tell us you don't have a boyfriend. And I'm like, I do have a boyfriend. At that moment, Roger walked in, full dress RAF uniform. Sorry I'm late, everyone. He was six foot three, good looking. And I was like, yes, here he is. Here's my officer and a gentleman moment. Then everyone thought I just paid him. And he was a paid date for the night, but <laughs> it was a tough crowd. But Roger existed, didn't last that much longer, and was a complete waste of time having him for the whole of my police training. But he did give me my officer and a gentleman moment. But you kind of just, that's a metaphor for how dramatic your life is. Like, there's always drama. I know. Good drama and bad drama. There's always something like, that's like out of a movie, waltzing in at the last minute, you know. Yeah. Having a hit out on your life is kind of like a movie too. Yeah, yeah. It's So this is real life, people out there listening. This this is what actually happens in real life. And, Roger, if you're out there, you had your moment. Your loss. <laughs> In the book is the year that I exposed the police. That's obviously my, the book is year zero to move into Australia. But let me tell you, Felicity, that what's happened after the police in the UK, ooh, way, way more interesting than book one. Way more interesting. Lots more stories. Known safety net of police, just crazy round the world stuff. But I, I think I feel that sometimes in my everyday life, it, you know, I, I'll. There's times when I'm blasé, and I Ooh, just very blasé. Roll, yes, yeah. it rolls off the tongue. By the way, yeah. uh, man came by last night. What? What? But then, the, and there's times when I'm like, look, I am. This is exactly what's happened. This is my life. This is what I've done, and. Even I was doing things the other day, I was writing out a list for talking to the publisher actually about the American side of of the book and was writing out things that I've done. And I was like, even I don't believe that myself sometimes because the list is just, you know, what crimes have you done? Murder. You know, to get a woman. So I did a speaking gig in Australia and it was for very, very wealthy. It was the top 5% wealthiest people in Australia. So it was very clandestine, very closed door. And I was, it wasn't a speaking gig. It was me as an expert speaking to them about their family security and safety. And a lady at the back of the room 
I'd, I'd seen her because it was like a three-day event and I'd seen her and I was like, she looks very interesting. She had a pair of Paddington yellow Wellington boots. And I remember seeing her. She was an older lady. And, I, and at the end of the of the, the last day, she said, or it was question and answers, and she said, uh, excuse me, do you deal with kidnapping? And I was like, yes. She went, great. And I, at that point, I said, "Let's we'll speak after because we're in a forum of all these super, they all knew each other because they were so wealthy. And I spoke to her afterwards and she was like, oh, can you deal with this kidnapping case for my family? And I'm like, yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing ever. Here's a little lady who I knew was incredibly wealthy and they didn't want to involve the police because of the name, the family name, because they were very, very well known. And I worked out pretty quickly that maybe their accountant who had worked for the family name for 30 years may be involved in the ransom that they had been paying because um, they hadn't told the police. So when I was writing my notes for this book, I'm like, oh, yeah, I did do that. You know, I d- obviously I did the murder investigation. Plus you can probably remember that was big news in, in Australia because the fam family came to me after the police hadn't That's right. yep. done anything. Um, and again, still really good friends with the sister of the victim because, you know, I built a relationship with them over the time. I had to. I was trying to find the, the murder of their son. But, yeah, it's kind of surreal sometimes. And then other times when I'm having a dark moment in my own life, Amy will, Amy will say, you know, Mom, just write down what you've done because – pretty amazing and maybe it's time to retire yeah I just need to keep uh, my advice to you is keep notes girlfriend so you don't forget stuff so the author of book two has them ready (laughs) exactly exactly it's been a pleasure taking inventory of my life and career with Felicity over the years Today, we only scratch the surface of what my career fighting for justice has entailed, and I look forward to our ever-growing friendship as we continue the very personal process of documenting my life. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren. Siren.